The story is told of a man desperately trying to find his seat at a busy Super Bowl final. If you know the, uh, the NFL finals, it, it's, it's absolutely buzzing. These huge stadiums, the whole place is a sea of colour as the rival teams and all the fans have kitted out with all that sort of painted up according to their, their team's colour. And this poor guy is desperately trying to find his seat. He's a little bit late for the game and he's bustling, he's ruffling, and he can't find it anywhere. Eventually, he finds it and he sits down, ready for the big game. But he's surprised that next to him is an empty seat. There couldn't be another empty seat in the whole place. So, so he inquires about this to the lady on the other side of the space. There she was, she had paint all over her face and the team colours, as you can imagine. She says, well, he says, well, why the empty space? And she said, yes, well, that, 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 that space belonged to my husband. Uh, but sadly, he, he died. Suddenly this guy feels really terrible, feels really bad. Oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry to hear that. But, but surely another friend or another family member would, would have jumped to the chance to be here at the NFL Super Bowl final. She says, yeah, I know, it's really weird, isn't it? But they all wanted to be at the funeral. (laughs) See, life, life is a matter of priorities. We can't be everywhere. We can't do everything. And so we have to make choices. And sometimes people make wrong choices. I was meeting up with someone the other day. He compared his life a little bit to like spinning plates. You've seen spinning plates at the circus. These guys are these tall poles with plates at the top. And they're trying to, desperately trying to keep them going. And then they start another one over here, trying to keep them going. The only thing holding these plates in place is the centrifugal force and the guy's effort wiggling this stick. It's exhausting even watching it. My friend said, oh, I feel like I'm just doing that with my life. I've got my work life to keep spinning. And then I've got my, my family life over here to keep spinning. And, and, and then I've got my personal life. got to keep jogging, keep spinning. And then I've got my spiritual life to keep spinning. And it can be a real struggle, can't it? To keep everything going. I, think, I doubt any of us here tonight would say we've, we've got all our priorities in exactly the right place. We might sometimes feel like headless chickens running from one plate to the next. And it's almost inevitable, isn't it, that, that we're going to be paying more attention to some plates than, than others. Because, of course, we know what happens if we don't get that report in at work on time. And we know what happens if we don't walk the dog, or if we don't drop the kids off at school, or whatever. And, I don't know, perhaps, perhaps we feel it is that, that spiritual plate, which is just starting to slow down, just starting to wobble, and threatening to fall to the floor. I don't know, our Bible reading, our prayer life, our uh, witness to unbelieving friends, our our love and service of our small group, perhaps. So perhaps, we're, perhaps we're aware of this plate wobbling, and, and maybe this is a cause of anxiety in us or concern in us. But, but because of the, the pressures of life and trying to keep everything else going, we don't see any other solution. We don't see any other option. Well, in this letter, Paul is writing to his friend and colleague Titus. He's left him on the Greek island of Crete to oversee the churches there. But it's not a private letter, for your eyes only. No, no, if you like, Paul has cc'd the whole of the congregations in Crete in on this letter. We're in on this letter. And Paul begins here, in the first four verses, by laying out his own priorities as an apostle. And he wants to tell us why it is absolutely worth our while for us to emulate his example. So here's our our first point. Paul's priority 
is to make known the truth which transforms. The truth which transforms. You see this in verse 1, don't you, with his weighty job titles. Look at that with me. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, many prophets uh, took this title, servant of God. And Paul takes this title for himself because he, he wants us to know that he's not serving his own agenda, but God's alone. He's, um, he's owned and controlled like a servant, like a slave, if you like, by God. Indeed, he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle is a sent man, if you like, a man on a mission. But what is that mission? Well, he goes on to tell us, doesn't he? Verse 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect. It seems that above all, Paul is concerned for God's elect, God's chosen ones. Well, who on earth are they? Well, the elect are basically anyone who's going to put their faith in Jesus. There might be people who already have put their faith in Jesus, like the people in these churches in Crete. Or it might be people who are yet to put their faith in Jesus, but will do so. Maybe the people the churches are trying to witness to on this island. You see, God is a saviour. But much more than that, God is absolutely sovereign. Which means God knows exactly those whom he's going to save. And it's that truth. The truth that God has an elect that keeps Paul going in his ministry. You see this in, in Acts 18. Uh, Paul's in Corinth and he's preaching the gospel, but it's just not working. And no one really likes what he's saying and, and, he, and he's getting rather fed up. So one night he just starts packing his bags. I'm out of here. This is just a, a total waste of time. That's what he thinks. But God speaks to him and says, no, 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 Paul, keep on speaking. Why? God says, for I have many people in this city. So Paul, you can imagine, begrudgingly sticking around in this miserable city. And he carries on speaking. And sure enough, through his teaching, the elect come to put their faith in Jesus. In the mid-1700s, there was a, a man in New England called Luke Short. He was a farmer. And somehow or another, he managed to live to a whopping 100 years old. And there he was, he's in his field one day, just meditating on life and death and, and all these sorts of things, as you do when you're a 100-year-old man. And he recalled hearing about Jesus when he was a boy, when he was 15 years old, all the way back in Dartmouth, England. And suddenly he was struck with the horror of facing an eternity, facing death, without a saviour. And then and there, Luke Short, 100 years old, gave his life to Jesus Christ. 85 years after having heard the gospel. Whoever shared the gospel with Luke when he was a 15-year-old boy probably thought that's a total waste of time. He probably sat in church just looking bored, picking his nose. But 85 years later, it seems he was elect. See, if God has an elect, it means our witness is never a waste of time. We don't know who the elect are. I wasn't given sort of special goggles like this. I put an ordination that doesn't do anything. I can't see who the elect are. No one knows who the elect are. But it's more than likely it's the people we are rubbing shoulders with. More than likely it's the people we're praying for. The people we are trying to talk about Jesus with. And so to us, God says, keep 
on speaking. For I have many people in this city. Paul is an apostle, he says, for the faith of God's elect. But that's not all. Carry on reading with me. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Knowing the truth is kind of important these days, isn't it? Especially in a culture when you're surrounded by lies. I quite enjoyed the, the recent US election because every time there was a debate, a debate, everyone kept on saying, oh, we've got to fact-check that, oh, we've got to fact-check that. Everyone was fact-checking everything. And funnily enough, you might not know this, but the culture of Crete, ancient Crete, was very much like ours. It was kind of like a post-truth culture. You have your truth, I have my truth, let's just agree to disagree. It's funny, it's well documented that ancient Crete, that they didn't even consider lying to be wrong. They, they just didn't think it was wrong at all. In fact, the Greeks, the rest of Greece, they used to say, oh, you're just being a Cretan, as if to say, you're being a liar, because that's what Cretans did. So imagine, therefore, being a Christian on this island, a Christian committed to the truth. It's going to be incredibly hard. But lies weren't just out there in the rest of the island. Lies were beginning to seep into the church as well. We'll see this in coming weeks, but false teachers and deceivers have begun to slip in with this veneer of respectability, and they started to teach lies. So the church in Crete faced lies from without, lies from within. And so you see, into that situation, Paul says it's urgent that you know the truth. Because he knows that what we believe in our heads is going to affect how we live. The knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. You might have seen on the flyers. We've got this title of the series, Grace Does Good. And someone said, Andy, it's just terrible English. It doesn't make any sense. So I, I, I want to persuade you that this is the theme of Titus. Now, are you up for this? I'm going to take you on a whistle-stop survey of this book as a way to sort of get us into it. Okay, you've got, to, you've, got to be up, you've got to be up for this. Follow with me in your Bibles. Look down with me. I want to show you that Grace Does Good is the theme of this book. Look down with me at chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 8. And uh, Paul wants Titus to appoint church elders who... Love what is good. In contrast to the false teachers in chapter 1, verse 16, who are unfit for doing anything good. In chapter 2, verse 3, older women in the church are to teach the younger women what is good. In chapter 2, verse 7, older men are to set younger men an example in what is good. Chapter 2, verse 14, Christ has redeemed us so that we might be eager to do what is good. Chapter 3, verse 1, the church is to be ready to do whatever is good. Chapter 3, verse 8, the church is to be careful to do what is good. Chapter 3, verse 14, the church must learn to devote themselves to what is good. Do you you get the point? God's grace does good. We're going to see this again and again throughout this letter. And friends, you've got to know this is... This isn't just the message of Titus. This is the heartbeat of our church. Our priority isn't simply to make converts. uh, People who sort of academically subscribe, yes, yes, Jesus is my king. No, we want to make disciples. uh, People who are mature in the faith and clear in their convictions. People who uh, can stand firm for the truth, even when we're in a culture of lies. People who 
don't just love Jesus, but who do good. And you know what? I praise God that that's what we're seeing in our church. In, in any given week, I'll receive a number of encouragements and a number of discouragements. But this week, I was encouraged when um, someone emailed me to say, oh, I, I know we're massively oversubscribed. All the ladies' groups are way too big. So could, could I host a ladies' group in my home? That was an encouragement. I was encouraged when um, someone who's brand new to church bounced up to me after the prayer meeting saying, oh, I can maybe help out with the admin on the weekend away, and uh, maybe I can help out with the awesome, the after-school club as well. That encouraged me. And I was encouraged when someone came up to me on Saturday morning at the men's breakfast, and, and they told me, I, I've got this personal trainer, and he's got lots of questions about Jesus. And Is there an evangelistic course I could bring him to? That encouraged me too. You see, God's grace working in our lives, it does such good. Such good. The truth transforms us. But one of the more disheartening emails I got this week, um, I was asking people, do you want to be a part of a small group Bible study? And someone said, you know what, I don't really. I mean, life's busy, but I'm just too busy for regular fellowship. And actually, I don't think I need to. I'm doing okay spiritually. I can just read my Bible. I can pray. No, thank you. Thank you, but no, thank you. But notice Paul here. He's not just concerned for his personal faith and his personal good. He's concerned for the faith of others. I guess at the end of his point, we should ask ourselves, look, are my priorities, are they at all like Paul's priorities? Am I concerned not just for my good spiritually, but for the good of others? That's a good question for us to ask ourselves. But maybe this is what you're thinking at this point. I think, no, 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 Andy, if I make... If I make my spiritual life more of a priority, if I give more attention to that plate over there, won't all the other plates then suffer? If I uh, am bolder in, in speaking the truth about Jesus at work, won't I suffer? If, uh, if I commit to that small group, won't my job performance and my job security suffer? And so we want to know, don't we, is it worth it? Is it worth emulating Paul's priorities? And so on to our second point tonight. The truth which transforms us is absolutely trustworthy. Notice in verse 2 that Paul's commitment to the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, it's actually based on something so much bigger. Look at that, verse 2. It's a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Now you probably know this, but in the Bible, the word hope doesn't mean how we use the word hope. We say, oh, I hope it won't rain today. And of course it will, because it's Britain and it's August and I'm on holiday and of course it's going to rain. That's, you know, we use the, the, hope, the word hope in that sort of wishy-washy, vague way, don't we? The Bible uses it in the exact opposite way. In the Bible, hope is absolutely certain. And so for Paul... The foundation of his ministry is knowing that eternal life lies ahead. And Paul gives this very helpful. He gives us three distinct reasons for his certainty. The first there, you'll see it on your sheets, is God's character. And it might seem a bit obvious, doesn't it, in verse 2, where Paul says, God does not lie. You might think, well, duh. But it wasn't so duh for the people in Crete, because uh, being in Crete, being from pagan backgrounds, they mainly worshipped the god Zeus. 
That was the, the god who they lifted up as their pillar of morality and, and, and integrity. Zeus, he's our man. That's what the, the Cretans would say. Now, what do you know about Zeus? Well, Zeus liked to transform himself into various different animals and uh, in order to sleep with beautiful women. That's Zeus. He liked to lie and deceive in order to get his own way to further his prospects on the Greek pantheon. That's the god of Crete. And so it's very little surprise, therefore, that the island is full of liars. What we believe impacts how we live. It impacts our culture. But our culture is not so different, as we heard earlier. Our culture spins a lot of lies, doesn't it? Lies which, actually, we Christians, we find it incredibly hard not to believe. The lie that um, if we work just a little bit harder, then we'll feel secure. So we work harder and we work harder, convinced that happiness and security lies just around the corner, but of course it never comes, does it? And maybe it's the lie that the most important thing in my life is that I express myself sexually. And if we can't do that, we feel absolutely worthless. It's a lie. It's a lie our culture tells us, and we buy it. (laughs) See, the lies of our culture are a little bit like herbal tea. Um, in the office, Carrie likes to drink herbal tea from time to time, and um, it's, uh, it smells great. It smells really good. She brings in this big mug and this, this lovely aromatic aroma of, sort of strawberries and berries. It sort of wafts across the room, and I'm like, ooh, I want one of those. She very kindly goes off and, and, and makes me one. She doesn't often do that, incidentally. And, um, and then, I, and then I, and I, oh, it smells so good. But then I drink it. It's so horrible. It's bitter. It's nasty. It, it promised so much, but it delivers so Little, it lies. <laughs> but friends, when, is, when have God's promises ever let you down? When has God's word ever fallen short? See, knowing God's character, well, we're able, we can afford to build our lives on eternity because we know God doesn't lie and he's promised it to us. The next reason for certainty Paul gives us is God's plan. Notice in verse 2 that we read there that the hope of eternal life has been promised before the beginning of time, or literally from before ages eternal. So Paul's saying that eternal future, okay, eternal life in the future, was promised all the way back in eternity past. So it wasn't like plan B or anything. It wasn't like God looked at the Adam and Eve situation and went, ah, rubbish, Eden, didn't work out, right, uh, heaven, great, let's, let's do that. Eternal life was never plan B. It was never an afterthought. We've been made and saved for eternal life. I was reading recently, in the 6th century, missionaries had, had, had just brought the gospel to this land, and to, uh, to the, in particular to the English kingdom of Northumbria. And King Edwin was the king of Northumbria, and he gathered his nobles together to discuss, look, should we convert to Christianity? It's a, it's a newfangled thing, or should we stick with our old pagan gods? And according to Bede, the, the, the historian, here's what one of the, his lords said to him. It's a lengthy quote, but it's a good one. Your Majesty... When we compare this present life of man on earth with the eternity of which we have no knowledge, it seems to me a bit like the swift flight of a single sparrow through a banqueting hall. There you are, you're sitting on a winter's day, warm yourself in front of the fire. Outside, the stormy winds and rains and winter snow are raining down. The sparrow flies swiftly through one hall of the door and then out of the next. 
While he's inside, in those seconds, he is safe from the storm. But after a few seconds of comfort, he vanishes from sight into wintry world from which he came. In the same way, man appears on earth for but a little while. But of what went before this life and of what follows, we know absolutely nothing. Therefore, if this teaching of Christ has brought any more certain knowledge, it seems only right that we follow it. Wise chap, King Edwin, converted. And here we are, 2,000 years later. Friends, we exist in this moment of time. But eternity is what you've been made for. And eternity is what you've been saved for. So it's wise to build your life on that promise of eternal life. Well, here's the third reason for certainty, and that is God's revelation. Verse 3 doesn't quite go how I'd expect it to. I'm always quite surprised by it. It goes, uh, and at his appointed season, God brought his word to light through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't say that, does it? It says, and at his appointed season, God brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me, Paul, by the command of God our Savior. That that surprises me. You see, God's promise of eternal life wasn't a one-time only offer. You know, it's only for those who are lucky enough to live in Palestine between 30 AD and 33 AD. And if you heard Jesus then, good for you. Everyone else, sorry, you missed it. No. The promise of eternal life that Jesus won for us at, his, at the cross. No, it's, it's now been revealed to everyone through Paul and the apostles and, and in their written words. You see, friends, we can build our lives on this promise of eternal life because it has been clearly revealed to us. But here's the problem. The problem for Paul is that at this stage, when he's writing this letter, he's a very, very old man. And so he's perhaps concerned, well, how, how will this message, how will my preaching, how will it continue to go out into places like Anglia, where we are now, as they knew it then? How will that happen? Well, the answer, as we see it here in verse 4, is through Paul's children. Of course, he didn't have any biological children, but he had people who inherit his mission. Look at verse 4. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Saviour. As we close, Paul gives us a challenge and a comfort. And we've got to see them together. The challenge for Titus here and the challenge for us is to stick with Paul's priorities. To be true sons, true inheritors of our common faith. I wonder if if at the start of this week... um, at the beginning of a new academic year, it would be wise for us to reassess our priorities, to think, have we got the plates spinning at the right rate? Are we giving the right plates the right amount of attention? Maybe it's a good idea to perhaps sit down with your spouse if you're married, maybe your flatmate, uh, maybe people in your small group. Uh, just think, look, have I got this right? Tell me if I've got this right. It's a wise thing to do, uh, to reassess our priorities in the light of what Paul's priorities are, in the light of eternity. 
Now, I'm aware that's hard. And in a culture of lies, it's not going to be easy, is it, to stick to the truth? And in a culture with very different priorities, it's not going to be easy to stand out. And so Paul ends with a comfort, the comfort of Paul's hope. Because as we heard earlier, I think um, the thing which causes most of us anxiety and insecurity in life is, is just the uncertainty of everything. What, if, what happens if I mess up at work? And that plate falls to the floor. What happens if, if my health fails? And that falls to the floor. What happens if I let my children down? And that plate falls to the floor. And so what do we do? We, we spend our lives running from plate to plate, like headless chickens, scrabbling for a sense of peace and security. But isn't it wonderful then? Isn't it wonderful that the hope offered to us freely through the Lord Jesus Christ, is absolutely certain. God doesn't lie. He's promised it. He's revealed it. And if we're trusting in Jesus Christ, that eternity is completely secure. And friends, friends, when you're standing in the certainty of God's grace, peace comes. Paul says, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our saviour. If you've ever been to Milan, you'll know that the cathedral there has three vast arches leading into the place. The left-hand arch above it has a, has a beautiful um, relief of, of, of some flowers in blue. But underneath those flowers it says, all that pleases is but for a moment. That's the left-hand arch. On the right-hand arch is a picture of a cross And then underneath the cross is all that causes us trouble is but for a moment. But then in between them them is is this big central arch, the arch that actually leads into the cathedral. And underneath that arch, above it, says this inscription, all that is important is that which is eternal. Friends, make eternity your priority. And your comfort. Let me pray. Father God, forgive me for messed up priorities and forgive us for when we look for security and hope and, and lasting pleasure in all the wrong places and we, we get all mixed up. Lord, thank you so much that you have revealed the truth of the gospel to us. Thank you, Father, so much for your grace. And we pray and we trust that knowing this truth, it will transform us. Knowing this grace, it will cause us to do good. So send us out now, Lord, certain in the future hope that we might be transformed for your glory and used for your purposes. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.